Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning. Man, that's loud. Is that, is there a feedback? Can you guys, are you okay? All right. I don't know why it sounds so loud to me up here right now, a little bit. Well, we have a number of our people away traveling right now. Uh, but it's really good to have all of us here who made it out to service. If you're joining us online, we're glad that you're still able to connect with us through technology. Uh, if you've been here for a little bit, you know that I've been working my way through a sermon series called Follow Jesus. And this morning, I want to talk about something that is so essential to this idea of following Jesus. You can't really talk about following Jesus without at some point talking about knowing what God's will is. Because when you say, I'm going to follow someone, your very next question is, where are we going? Like, where are you taking me? I can't follow if I don't have an idea of where you're headed. Do you know how to follow Jesus? Do you know how to locate him in your life and build a life that follows him, that understands what his will is. You know, most of the time when we're thinking about God's will, it's in the face of a decision we've got to make. Usually when we have something set before us where we have to choose one of several options, that's when we really begin thinking, what does God want from me? And I don't want to be cynical about it. I think a lot of us, we ask that question because we actually want to please God. Because we want to do what is right in God's eyes. So the main question for us usually regarding God's will is, what is God's will? And this is especially important when all of the choices are morally equal, where it's not like one of them is really bad and the other one is really good, but I could pick any one of these things and probably be in the good graces of God, so how do I choose? We could start with something as trivial as what to order for lunch. I know people who actually pause to ask God, should I have the salad or should I have the steak? Now, if that's where your relationship with God is, and that's important to you, I don't want to belittle that or tease you about it, but really, it, it doesn't seem to matter all that much which of those choices we make. And yet, sometimes we are paralyzed because we need to know, God, what do you want for me, and what do you want from me? I want to ask you a question. Now, just before I continue on with this message, Think about the last substantive decision you made in your life. I don't know what counts as a significant decision for you, but think about something a little more than, uh, do you want fries with that? Like, not, not that kind of a choice, but maybe something like, did you choose to relocate somewhere? Did you choose to leave your company, start a new job, or go back to school, have another kid? I don't know what it, Think about a big decision where you could have gone either way. You had some measure of control over which way you'd go. And I want to ask you, how did you arrive at that decision? What was your process? Whenever you're facing a significant decision in your life, what are the driving forces that shape that decision? And I don't say that to be rhetorical. I'm, I'm honestly asking you, how do you navigate this weird world that we live in? Because I've said it several times now from the pulpit, life really is a series of decisions, many of them small and and actually inconsequential in one way, but in aggregate, all of them add up to build a life. So how do you reach decisions in your life? 
Is God's will a part of that? And if so, to what extent is the will of God a part of the way you navigate life in this world? You know, the conventional wisdom about God's will goes something like this. There is this specific path or, or plan that God has for your life. And he knows what it is, but you don't. And so your job is to decipher it, to figure it out, to make sure that you stay on the path which God has set out for you. Because if you do, if you get it right, then the result is you're going to live the life you're supposed to live, and you'll get the results you're supposed to get. You'll be blessed. You'll have good fortune. Things will go well for you. But if you get it wrong, you'll be off course. You'll be living some life other than the one God planned for you. You'll be wasting your time, your energy, your resources, and you'll be frustrated and experience undue pain and loss. So that's the picture that conventional wisdom paints about the will of God, is this is the big challenge. Life is a giant maze. And there's only one real solution to the maze, and if you don't find it, you're going to be wandering and lost and wasting your life while you try to figure that out. Does that sound familiar to you? Is that the way that you have thought about the will of God in the past? Because I'll be honest with you, that's the way I thought about it for a very, very long time. It's the way I was taught what the will of God was growing up in the church. I really thought about this. What a weird picture of God that paints if that's the way he set up the world. If in this confusing world filled with options, I don't know if any of you read Barry Schwartz's book, uh, the, The Paradox of Plenty. He talks about how we live in a world overflowing with abundant choices. He just went to his local grocery store and was just completely overwhelmed by how many different kinds of cereal you can buy for breakfast in the morning. It's insane the total number of choices we have to make about totally trivial things. And sometimes we're paralyzed by it. And so think about this. In a world filled with all these decisions, if there's only one right path, how on earth are you supposed to figure it out? And if you are an OCD type person like me, you know, like when I was a kid, I was drawing a picture. If I screwed up even a little bit, I wouldn't erase it. I'd just crumple it up and start over. I couldn't bear the knowledge that even though I could erase it without a trace, I knew I'd messed up. So if you guessed wrong and you're off course, you wasted a year of your life in the wrong life, how do you recover from that kind of frustration? See, this conventional wisdom paints a picture of life that I don't think the Bible supports. There are so many choices that are valid to us at any given moment. And I don't believe the Bible paints a picture of one ordained, anointed path which we're supposed to guess in advance. Looking backwards, I think we can see the will of God unfolding in the rearview mirror, but I don't know that we can actually know that ahead of time and navigate the right path as though God has us on some divine GPS. There's some problems with this conventional wisdom about the will of God. One of them is that when we assume there's only one right choice which pleases God, then our entire obsession is finding out what that choice is. How am I supposed to do the right thing? And really, if we're, the subtext is, because if I get it wrong, I don't want to have all the bad consequences. I want to have a good life, a good outcome. And so the obsession for us is, I want to make the right choices because I want to experience the right outcomes. So you've got somebody who asks you out on a date when you're single. Do you remember this? Especially if in our, our culture back in those days, many of us, it was like the man's role to initiate. But what a dreadful thing when the wrong man initiates. 
with you? And how do you graciously go, um, please go away. <laughs> You're not the one. If we believe there's only one choice and we're trying to navigate that, then we obsess over what that choice is because we're terrified that if we get it wrong, our lives will be way off course. And so because of that, because God knows what that one right path is, I don't know, I begin to obsess over trying to figure it out, and I start looking to signs and omens to figure it out. Have you ever done that? I I was um, flipping through a book called The Mystery of God's Will by Chuck Swindoll. It's an okay book, but some of the funny stories he tells in the beginning of people who were convinced that God spoke to them through these weird things. A man was wrestling through what to do with his life, And one day, he lived in Washington, D.C., his car broke down right in front of the Philippine embassy. And he took that as a sign from God that he was supposed to be a missionary to the Philippines. Another woman, he tells about, was wrestling with whether to go on a tour of the Holy Land. It was very expensive, but it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing. She was like, do I do it, do I not? And then she read in the brochure that they would fly over to Israel in a 747, a Boeing 747. The following morning, she forgot to set her alarm, and she woke up unprompted at exactly 7.47 a.m. And she happened to look over the clock and said, that was a sign from God. I'm not trying to make fun of these people, but I'm trying to point to a serious problem if that's the way you navigate life. If you really believe that given these possible choices, one of them is anointed by God and the others are not, and you have to figure it out, you will struggle to find signs and breadcrumbs everywhere. I've got a predilection for numerology. Like I, I think stuff like that fascinates me. So when things like that happen, I'm very susceptible to this kind of thing myself. When's the last time you said to someone, oh my gosh, that's a sign from God? Like, I'm going to go to Lululemon. I know that's a very expensive pair of pants, but if they have my size and my color exactly, and they never do, but if they do, it will be a sign from God. And then you go, and it's on sale, and you go, well, that's it then. I have no, I have a moral obligation to buy those pants. Even if we're looking for those signs in the Bible, and I've known friends uh, from college on, who have done things like, I don't know what to do. So they just start flipping to the Bible. And they, the finger, the anointed finger, lands on a verse. They look at the word and go, that's what God wants. And they find some way to make meaning out of whatever random verse their finger pointed to. Even if you look for these signs from God in the Bible or in the wisdom and counsel of Christian friends, If what you're trying to do is figure out the one anointed path through your life, and if you get it wrong, your life will be a mess, and if you get it right, your life will be awesome. If that's what you think this is about, then you'll be so desperate for that guidance that you will really lose your objectivity, and you'll start to hear what you want to hear, see what you want to see. When you rely on your car breaking down to decide where you're going to serve the world and where you're going to serve God, It's not that God can't speak to you in that. But you realize that if that's what you rely on to direct your life, you will soon not be able to tell the difference between coincidence and conviction. Do you understand that? And even though God is churning away at your heart, you will wait for a sign from heaven because his conviction heavy on your heart through his spirit is not enough. 
And when that email comes, that text message comes, that weird coincidence comes, you go, that must surely be all it takes to get me to move out of my paralysis. You know, this approach suggests that somehow God is hiding important information that we need. As if the kind of God we have is one that goes, well, I'm the teacher, you're the students, I'm not going to tell you what's going to be on the test, but oh, it's going to be a bad one. And the students are begging the teacher, please just give us some hint. Will this be on the exam? Because it's too much. There's so much to know. And the teacher says, that's your job to figure it out. I know and you don't. And so those students try to read clues like if the, t- if the teacher talks about it three times or if he puts a color slide instead of a black and white slide, that's going to be on the test. They're looking for breadcrumbs, signs, because they're desperate to know what the teacher won't reveal. You know, that kind of looking for signs and clues, it's closer to what the Bible calls divination. Are you familiar with divination? It's fortune-telling. It's basically looking for answers from a, a hidden God through supernatural means, through coincidences, through signs and omens. Think about someone so desperate to get some clarity about their future, they will pay a person to look into a clear ball of glass. Can I tell you that when you look into a crystal, you don't see anything. It's just glass. You see what the other person wants you to see. And to be so desperate for answers that you would pay someone to do that to you. Not because you actually believe they have answers, because you just need someone else to tell you what you believe God isn't telling you. And a lot of that is driven by this false picture that there's only one right choice in every decision. Truth is, God gave us brains. He gave us wisdom. And most of all, He gave us His Holy Spirit. He's revealed Himself in His Word. He's given us clarity in the places where we needed it. So that He doesn't have to steer us like we're on remote control. You know, sometimes I think that's the picture we get is, I'm just an RC car, and I'm just going to sit until God takes the thing and starts steering me the way I'm supposed to go. Then you're not really here. God gives us an unbelievable amount of latitude in how we choose things. But it's not just a free-for-all. It's not you choose whatever feels right to you. But he's given us clarity on certain things. You know, I've shared this before, but there is in the military this idea of a battle plan. Do you know about this? Where they, they look at the challenge, they look at the enemy, and they drop this huge battle plan. Sometimes hundreds of pages filled with contingencies and troop movements, resources. But as soon as the first bullet is fired in the battle, usually the battle plan goes out the window. And the soldiers on the ground say, what are we supposed to do? We were counting on the enemy zigging and they zagged and we don't know what to do. The battle plan doesn't account for this. And so the military caught on very quickly. This is a horrible way to paralyze your own troops. They're going to die while they're frozen in indecision. So instead, at the very top of the battle plan, they wrote something called the commander's intent. And the commander's intent is this. If all else fails, this is what I want. I don't care how you get it done. This is my idea, my plan. But in the end, what I want from you is written in bold at the top. And then here's my suggestion. But if all breaks down, you go do it any way you can. So you might say, I want you to take Hill 287 and knock out that anti-aircraft gun. That's the commander's intent. Here's my detailed plan. But when it all goes down, you have to do it whatever way it takes. If you watch Star Trek, they have this thing called the Prime Directive. 
Because as you're going through the galaxies and you're seeing all these different races of aliens and all these different situations, they can't write a handbook that accounts for every possible scenario. So if you're living life in a broken, complicated world, you're going to come across things where there's no clear idea what the right thing to do is. I face this all the time as a pastor. People ask me to do things. to They, they give me a request and I go, I don't know what the right thing is here. I, I don't have, they didn't teach me in seminary what to do about this. Someone once asked me, I'm doing, I'm, I'm going to have a lawsuit. I'm suing someone. I want to call you as a witness. Will you come and give a deposition? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't have a course on deposition making in court, what the pastor's role is in that. And so there is this idea of a prime directive that says, when you don't know what to do specifically, Latch on to the high-level picture of what I want above all things for you. That's the way I truly believe God's will works. That he doesn't give us an RC-controlled, moment-by-moment, turn-by-turn direction where only one of those things is right, but he gives us a, a commander's intent. He gives us prime directives that tell us what kind of life, what kind of heart he intends for us to have. And it's based on that kind of idea that we make all the little decisions of our lives. And when we make all the little ones out of a heart shaped by God, then in the end, all the big ones will be driven by the same motivation. You know, Deuteronomy 29.29, this is a verse that I really appreciated when I was a young Christian. It says, The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. Things that only he knows and no one else will ever know. We're not accountable for them. But we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us. So that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. Here's what we're reading here. That God has not written a Bible that has every possible permutation and contingency in your life Put down a paper. The Bible will be even longer than it is if you attempted to do that. Think about how much society has changed, how much technology has shaped the world. We have the internet now that the apostles could never have anticipated when they were writing the Bible. And it's created so many moral dilemmas that we have to navigate. And there's nothing in scripture that talks about the internet. Has anyone found the word internet in the Bible? Now, I can't even find the word network in the Bible. And yet we must navigate a changing world. And so what he says is there are things you don't know, but what he's saying is God has been clear where he needs to be clear. In everything else, use your brain. Find your wisdom. Just do something. Don't wait in paralysis for a specific direction, but find out the heart of God and live your life. Move forward, decide, act, obey, do whatever it takes. But he's given you clarity on the big picture of the kind of heart, the kind of life he intends for each of us. There are these big picture commander's intent or prime directive type passages that I've made a practice of collecting. It's a great idea to grab a little journal. And every time you're reading through the Bible in a given year, when you see one of these passages of scripture that says, ah, this is one of those things that where I, when in doubt, this is the heart of God. This is how he wants us to be. I was thinking about Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. 
When a teacher of the law said to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? If God had to reduce everything to one command, what would it be? And Jesus right away says, love God with everything that you've got. And then without being invited, he goes, and I got a second one that's pretty much just as important. Love other people the way that you love yourself. That's so important to me because there are times when I'm not exactly sure what my response is supposed to be. There are legal considerations, there are social, ethical, there's all these things, but at some point, I'm not really sure yet what the right move is. And then I look at the greatest commandment and I think to myself, what will please God the most in this? It is not what keeps me safe, it is not what protects me the most, it's not what keeps me free from liability, it is what expresses most sincerely a deep love for God and a deep love for another person. Even if that means I run afoul of someone, even if that means I bear a risk, even if that means my reputation is tainted, or I might even get sick or die, whatever it takes, one of my prime directives that I'm guided by, because Jesus said so, is to love God with everything in your power and to love other people in the same way you love yourself. If you're ever stuck in a paralysis of decision-making, turn to things like that and say, God, what represents the most loving thing that I could do. I'm not suggesting that I get that right every single time. I screw up a lot. But God has been clear where he needs to be clear. My job is not to wait in paralysis until he gives me a specific answer, but to know his heart, to let my heart be shaped by the heart of God. It's a a really fun thing for people to grab those journals and go, what's your battle plan, your commander's intent journal look like? What are the shape, the the verses that have shaped the core of your worldview and your heart? There are verses like Micah 6.8, where it's so simple. He says, you know what is good, what the Lord requires of you? Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with God. If you're ever unsure what God wants from you in a situation, run it through that filter. Is this just? Is this kind? Is this humble? Those are good questions to ask before you hit send on an email or text message, wouldn't you agree? Before you pick up that phone to flame someone or comment on their Facebook feed, is it just? Is it kind? Is it humble? It's not a responsibility to decipher the secret path through the maze of life. But really, it's our responsibility to become the kind of people whom God is raising us up to be. You know, I've raised four children. I'm almost done with the last one. (laughs) But you're never really done raising your kids, are you? And you know, some people, the way they raise their kids is almost like you're trying to raise a career, right, or a resume. They seem so obsessed on certain outcomes in their kid's life. But really, when we're raising a kid, we're not raising a doctor or a lawyer or a business person or an artist. We're raising a human being. And the goal of parenting is not to create a person who makes all the right decisions to get all the right outcomes. It's to imbue in them a certain heart, a certain set of values which are important to you and which are important to them. I don't really care what my kids do for a living as long as it's not criminal. If one says, I feel called by God to be a drug dealer, I have an issue and I'll I'll talk about their career choices. But really, if it's legal, 
I don't care what they do. I don't care if my daughter becomes a hairdresser or a neurosurgeon. None of that really matters that much to me because my heart's desperation is to raise a kid who is selfless and loving and Christ-like. If I could put such a person into this world, I will feel that I've done my job and I will love the person who we put out there in the wild. That's the kind of kid we're supposed to be raising. Not a piano virtuoso who hates the piano after five years, but someone who knows how to make beautiful music from their heart. That's the kind of person God wants to raise. He doesn't seem to to care that much exactly what we choose at these forks in the road. There's very little in Scripture to indicate that that's where God obsesses. But there are a lot of verses that speak to the kind of heart he wants to shape in us. Let me me give you another problem with this kind of conventional wisdom about God's will, is that it promotes a kind of unhealthy preoccupation with the future. We have this unhealthy need, especially in America, to know what the future holds. But let me ask you, do you really want to know the future? How many of you have seen the most recent James Bond movie? How many have not, but are planning to? So I'm going to tell you how it ends, okay? It's awesome. It's really significant. I'm going to tell you what what happens at the end. Is that okay? No, no. See, that's so against the etiquette of culture today. We have this thing called spoiler alerts because we hate spoilers. Doesn't that tip the hat to something? Look, we hate spoilers because the whole point of a story is the not knowing. When you know, it's not the same, is it? Oh, yeah, that's what happens at the end. And it's like when I'm recording the Bears game, and it's so important to me to watch it without knowing, and then someone at lunch goes, oh, my gosh, they're down 13 to 0. And you're like, oh, really? Really? Now I'm going to go home like an idiot and watch a three-hour pre-recorded program knowing exactly how it ends, and when they score, I'm not going to be like, yes, because I'll be like, yeah, I know what happens next. Do you understand that the power of a story is not knowing and then being taken on a journey? Even if you could see it coming, you still don't really know till the end. And the truth is, we don't really want to know the future as much as we think we do. You may think you want to know it, but if you knew everything about your future, you would not want to face it. I think... To know the future would be more of a curse than a gift to most of us. Because the future, even if you know it, is not something you have the power to control. And that's really why we obsess over the future. is not because we want to know the future, but because we want to control the future. What kind of kids will my, my, what kind of careers will my children have? What kind of person will I marry? How long will I live? How healthy will I be? What will my finances look like in 20 years? We want to know those things, not just to know them. What if you ask that of God? He goes, I'll tell you. In about three years, you're going to be broke and never recover. You'll be on food stamps till you die, and you're going to be really, really sick. Now you know. And no matter what you do, not much you're going to be able to do to get yourself out of that hole. Are you happy that you know? Are you counting down the days until that financial collapse? What if you knew the day that someone close to you is going to pass away? Suddenly, without warning, and now you know. Are you happy to have that knowledge? See, here's the thing. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17. 
Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What Paul is saying in this, in this passage is that some of the things that most profoundly shape our hearts and our faith that most profoundly shape our lives are things that if we knew about them in advance, we would avoid them at all costs. It is a sign of mental unhealth to seek out suffering and hardship. It's not godly, it's not spiritual, it's crazy to seek out suffering. I was taught as a young Christian, no, if you're a Christian, you should be like, oh, suffering's coming, yes! That's crazy! We don't teach that at Harvest, I don't support that here. You're not supposed to want bad things to happen to you. But bad things happen to everybody. They're part of life. And here's the crazy thing. Often it is through the worst things that happen to us that the most profound shaping takes place in our lives. And yet even though we know that, we would avoid that suffering at all costs if we could. If I knew ahead of time it's going to happen, I would avoid it if at all possible because even though I gained so much in the things that matter, I don't want to go through that. That's normal, healthy human instinct. I wonder how many of the 12 disciples would have answered Jesus' invitation, follow me, if he told them at the start how all of their lives would end. Because tradition says every single one of them except the apostle John was martyred for their faith. And some of them in horrible ways. I don't know how reliable the historical tradition is, but some of them are like, that's a really messed up way to die. If I knew that at the beginning, I'd be like, wow, Jesus, you're a really great dude. I'm going to have to pass though. Thanks. I'm good. I'm going to just live a quiet life in a cubicle and fade away. Because even though there's not much glory in that, it's safe. What if most of us choose that route? If we knew what the future held and some of the things that are going to really break us, and yet build us up. I read a book this week called The Will of God as a Way of Life. And it was written by a man named Jerry Sitzer. He also wrote another book called A Grace Disguised. And in it, he tells a story of how in one day in a car accident, being hit by a drunk driver, he lost three generations of his family in one moment. His mother, who was visiting from out of town, his wife, and their young daughter, all three were struck by that drunk driver and killed and he had to raise three remaining children as a single dad. He says there's no way he would wish that on anyone. It is, without a doubt, the worst thing that ever happened to him in his earthly life. And yet somehow in that horrible thing, so much beauty also erupted in his life. And yet, even knowing all that beauty, he would rather turn back the clock and not let that day happen. We would miss out on so much of the work of God in our lives if we knew the future up front. Because we don't want to know it. We want to control it. We want to avoid it if we can. This obsession with knowing God's will in this way is actually not good for us. Thessalonians five sixteen to 18 says it so simply. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's interesting how rarely 
references to God's will are about specific choices in a decision-making process. And how much more often they are about the kind of person he is asking us to become. But he's not saying the will of God is for you to make choices that don't lead to hardship and pain and loss, but that to be the will of God for you in Christ Jesus is to become the kind of person that whatever happens, whatever happens, you never lose your capacity for joy, for prayer, for gratitude. That's the will of God. It's not about finding the anointed path through a maze. It's about understanding the heart of God for us and being driven by him. Most of our obsessing over the will of God is about the logistics of our lives, right? Who should I marry? Where should I work? Where should I live? What car should I buy? It's not like those decisions are inconsequential, but do you see that we obsess most, we seek God's will most on things that are non-moral, non-spiritual, actually not that important to the core of our being. As if what matters to God is whether you become a doctor or a businessman. But really, what God seems most concerned about is not what you pick, but how you do it. I married Jeannie 26 years ago. We have a pretty good marriage. Not perfect, but I love it. I don't just love it. I love her. And I think we've built a healthy relationship, and we have a beautiful life together. And that weird mix of me and her, it works somehow. But I'm not going to suggest to you that I couldn't have married anyone else and made it work. I think there are probably at least six or seven hundred thousand women that I could have married and had a pretty good life with. I don't think God was holding his breath and will he find the needle in the haystack? But I think he's more asking, will you be the kind of husband to her that my son was to the church? Will you love her faithfully? Will you always be quick to forgive her? And will you spend the rest of your lives not, not chasing happiness, but building my kingdom together? Not indulging in the next great plan for the next weekend and enjoying the good life together. Nothing wrong with those plans and a good life, but will you spend the rest of your life also joining hands and serving me? That I've done with Jeannie. That I could have done with countless other women. The will of God is not in finding Jeannie, but the will of God is in building the kind of life that we have built together in response to his heart for us. God seems to be less concerned about the individual choices we make, far more concerned about the motives that drive every choice. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31. I love this verse. So whether you eat or drink... He's talking about a moral dilemma here, a religious dilemma. Someone could get very stumbled by this. He goes, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, almost as if you say, I don't really care. I don't think God even cares. Whatever you do, though, do it like this, all for the glory of God. Let this be the prime directive. Don't fret over which choice you make if all things are morally equal. But everything you do, do it for the glory of God. The goal of work is not to pick the right industry and the right employer. It's to work as though you're serving the kingdom of God. Are you following me? Because I could beat that dog all day long, right? It's, it's the heart of God for us. The will of God for us is not to pick the right path. 
It is to become like his son, Jesus Christ. To follow him with all our hearts. When I was a kid, this was one of my favorite games. That's how much of a nerd I am. Fellow nerds, anyone old enough to remember this game? What do we call it? It's called Mastermind. It's a game that pits a code maker against a code breaker. And so the code maker sits on the one end, and he puts four colored pegs into slots in a certain order. And then the code, code breaker, she will sit on the other end of the table and try to figure out what that code is by putting four random pegs. And then you put black or white pegs in the side to say, well, you got these colors right, but they're in the wrong sequence. And so you indicate how many are in the right colors, how many are in the right sequence. And then the code breaker in 10 turns makes incremental changes to see if they're getting closer to the code. I love that game. Not so much when I was the code breaker. I hated being the code breaker. But I loved being the code maker and stumping my brother. It made my whole day when he went through 10 turns. I'm like, you didn't get it, you dummy. It, it's such a good day when that happens. But I remember how much I hated it when it was my turn to guess. That's the way that I thought about God's will for a really long time. How about this, God? Is this closer? Is this a little better? If you allow a little play on words, I think the will of God is less like mastermind. And it's more about having the master's mind. It's not about making the right life decisions. It's about being driven by the right heart, the right thinking, the right alignment the right faithfulness. Let me end this way. Before we ask God what his will is for us in a decision, we should really wrestle through the more honest question, is God's will what I really want for my life? You know, I've had people ask me questions, and I know I've done this to them as well. Hey, should I get the soup or the salad? Oh, you should get the soup. Yeah, I'm going to get the salad. <laughs> well, why'd you ask me? What's the point of asking me if my input has no bearing on what you say? Because sometimes we just ask questions to think out loud to ourselves, to be convinced of what I already want. Before you ask God what he wants for you, are you sure that that's really what you want at all? See, the biggest barrier to God's will is not knowing God's will, it's having my own will. That's the really biggest barrier to God's will, is I know what I already want, and I'm not sure I want to accept what God wants. How many of us have the courage to go, God, you know I have a comfortable life, an affluent career, but anything you want from me in this life, the rest of my life is yours. Just tell me. How many of you have the courage to do that? Because that's scary to do. I did it one time exactly in my life, and I'm, I'm still terrified. <laughs> The biggest barrier to God's will is my will. And before you ask God what he wants, wrestle through that and be sure that what you really want for your life is what God wants for your life. Because if you really have that heart, then you won't ask him primarily what he wants in this choice or that choice, but you will wrestle for the rest of your life to be driven by the motives that drive the heart of God. As I close, let me give you the most beautiful example of this that I've ever seen. Is Jesus, on the cusp of his own horrific death through crucifixion, 
wrestling with this, agonizing over knowing how bad it's going to be. And he says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Meaning he knew the suffering coming, and he didn't want to drink it. So he said, if there's any way not to do it this way, please let me know. But then at the end, he says, not as I will, but as you will. Some of the most powerful, life-shaping words ever spoken, and they're an example to you and me. While we obsess over knowing what God's will is, Jesus obsessed over yielding His will to the will of the Father. Because the real issue with God's will is not ignorance, it's unwillingness. It's a lack of surrender. And in this, Jesus surrendered His very life in order to have a life shaped by the heart of God. What is the will of God for you in the troubled times we're living in? What's the will of God for us as a church in these troubled times? In all my 54 years of life, I have not seen a time this crazy in our world. It's like everything is hitting us at once. Everyone's so angry. Everyone is shouting. There are dogmatic convictions on every platform there is. There's no casual opinions anymore. Have you noticed that? No one's willing to discuss anything. They just want to shout at you. And you just want to shout back at them. No matter what we pick, we will divide every room. How do we live for God in such a world? What is the will of God for us in a world ripped apart, not just by a pandemic, but by an absolutely divided reaction to that pandemic? By racial unrest and complete disagreement on the extent and the nature of that racial unrest. Sometimes, and it's not my place to tell us what the will of God is. But sometimes if we listen for Him, what He'll tell us is that the will of God for us in a broken world will take us down a path that leads to self-sacrifice, loss, pain, suffering, even death. It's a path that will run right into the face of our fear, our hesitation. Where we may have to lose everything we've treasured and protected. Where we may be found with nothing left to give our kids except the weight of our hearts and the testimony of our lives. The will of God sometimes is illogical. It's radical. It's reckless. It's not for everyone even though I'm sure God wishes it could be. But maybe it's for you if you're hearing right now and something is stirring in you. Because in every generation, there have been those who walked far outside the leper colony and those that walked in to touch the sick. What is the will of God for us in troubled times? Is it simply to have the right beliefs and the right opinions? Or will some of us hear that the will of God 
is to be like Jesus and say, everything in me screams, don't do that. That's stupid. It's irresponsible. And yet Jesus says, this is what I would do. Will any of you follow me? I'm not advocating some reckless abandonment of good sense. But God wants people today who are radically devoted to his kingdom, no matter what the cost. Will that be you? Will that be me? I want to just leave that there. And I want to ask you to sit with that for a minute. Just close your eyes. This is not about the people elsewhere in this room. Don't even assume you're already there. Just put your heart right in front of God. Is the will of God just something you're curious about? Or is it what you want for your own life? Are you willing, because of the will of God already made clear, to run straight head on into your fears, your hesitations, your instinct for self-preservation? Only the living God can get us to do something that crazy and reckless, but can he still do it in your life? So let's now, just in this moment of, of quiet, as the music plays, let's let God himself speak directly to each of us. And let's respond if he does touch our hearts. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.